Jocelyn Goldfine is a true IT visionary. Having worked at VMware and Facebook in the early days of both, and now as Managing Director at Zeta Venture Partners, Jocelyn has been involved in the formative years of the internet and technological innovations. In part one of this special two-part interview, Jocelyn and Ian discuss everything from the rise of the computer sciences industry to how to look at investing in startups, and they discuss the role artificial intelligence will play in businesses moving forward, how the rise of cloud technology could be a precursor to the rise of AI, and so much more. Plus, Jocelyn dives into her years of experience at Facebook working closely with Mark Zuckerberg, as well as what it was like riding the VMware rocket ship right as it caught fire. This podcast is sponsored by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. An in-studio special guest, a true IT visionary. Jocelyn, how's it going? It's going great. We are thrilled to have you here, and we're going to learn all about your career and your work at Zeta. What's first, for the listeners, Mm -hmm. what does Zeta even mean? Ah, uh, Our firm is called Zeta Venture Partners, and Zeta is short for Zettabyte, which is a trillion gigabytes for uh, actually all all, all your nerdy listeners probably already knew that. And um, 2013 was the year our firm was started. And it was also um, the inaugural year of the Zettabyte era, because that was the first year that a full Zettabyte of internet traffic was uh, transmitted across the internet as a whole. And I think we're up in this sort of three or four Zettabytes a year territory now here in 2019. And so it's kind of fun to think that, you know, a generation from now, 50 years from now, people will know you know, when the firm had its roots, when it got started, because this is the beginning of the Zettabyte era. I love that. Names have meanings, and it, it's cool to hear that. Um, you've had an incredible career, um, including, you know, stints at VMware and Facebook and a bunch of other really cool places. Um, but I wanted to to touch first on the type of work that you're doing now, the type of companies that you're investing in. Um, what is kind of, give me the... Uh, Give me the overview of, of what you're excited about working at, at Zeta Venture Partners. Yeah, well, as you might guess from the name, we're excited to invest in startups that are harnessing the power of big data, AI, and machine learning. And so um, we are in, investing in, in startups that are applying AI to solve real world problems. And um, one thing that's true about AI is that they're, by definition, to, to apply AI to a problem, you need data and that data needs to be about something. Otherwise you can't train, you can't coalesce on a certain solution to a problem. So inevitably these companies are very cited in a domain, whether that's, um, and we usually see it in in one of two kinds of domain, either a job function like sales or marketing where, where we can accumulate a lot of data about how those jobs are done and how to optimize and improve them. Or it's data about a, a, a market. So we look at a lot of companies in verticals, whether that might be fintech, whether that might be healthcare. Um, and one vertical where I spend a lot of time personally um, and that I'm very passionate about, given my history, is that of infrastructure, IT infrastructure and security. So thinking about how can we use 
and and not just thinking about how to use infrastructure to enable AI, we do invest in platforms that enable AI, but also thinking about, okay, how can AI manage the platform? How can I use AI to make my cloud infrastructure run more efficiently? How can I have smart networking, smart storage? And especially in the cybersecurity space, where I think that the, you know, the problems facing us are immense. I think, you know, AI is kind of our only hope because yeah. attackers just have to find one way and the attack surface is almost infinite. Attackers just need to find one vulnerability. Defenders have to defend an infinite surface. And so your only real hope of having enough, you know, is 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 to augment human beings with AI to kind of cover all those all those entry points. And so that's the um, you know, that's I think uh, an incredibly interesting space. And also, you know, the bad the bad guys get access to that stuff too. And the they bad can... guys also have AI on their side. So yes, it's an arms race. Well, and I think this idea of you know big companies do have an advantage because you have large amounts of data. Mm-hmm. I mean, we uh, early in the uh, in the podcast we interviewed um, a startup CTO where they were saying they're like, yeah, the the big companies have this huge advantage. So we have to get crafty. We have to use publicly available data to train our algorithms. Mm -hmm. And those type of things, when you are a big company, you have to say like, okay, we have all this, this data, this is an advantage. It's something the hackers don't have. How do we use this? Mm -hmm. How do we use this to our advantage? Um, You know, similar to how a military with a much larger force, Freudian, uh, (laughs) military with a much larger force would be able to use, you know, those strength in numbers. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And in fact, um, another tenet at Zeta is that we don't invest in consumer startups. We only invest in startups solving business problems whose customers are businesses. So we think absolutely one of the best ways for a startup um, to amass a great data set is not to try to compete with big companies necessarily using public data that everybody can get, but actually to make those big companies your customers and actually enable them to pool their data with each other and deliver a better system for everyone. Let's go a little bit into your background. Um, What drew you to computer science in the first place? Oh, I was a super nerdy kid. (laughs) Um, I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. I played Dungeons and Dragons in middle school. you know, like I always identified as a nerd long before, and and I was academically strong. I mean, I was also a, like a smart kid who got good grades, but I was well-rounded. I mean, I didn't particularly think of myself as a STEM kid. In fact, my big activity in high school was speech and debate. Oh, yeah. I was, uh, I was captain of my speech and debate team, in fact. Um, and... Uh, and actually, ironically, my successor, the uh, the who took over from me as as captain of that speech and debate team, is also a, a venture capitalist now. Oh, that's funny. The Ann Murico at Floodgate. So I don't know if there's a connection there. Um, so I was so I was I was well-roundedly um, academic, and um, I really wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to do something I thought was very hard. And um, you know, if I if I have to get back into the mindset of my 17 year old self when I started freshman year of college. I probably thought physics and math sound too hard. And, you know, there's some other subjects that I feel really confident are in my wheelhouse. And like computer science is right at that borderline. Like, like, I think I might be able to do it, but I don't know. Yeah. So that might be the hardest thing that potentially I could succeed at. And so, um, so it really started just with this kind of competitive mindset of like, what's the hardest thing I can do and be successful. And then um, I was just really fortunate to go to a college which was Stanford, where Eric Roberts had really innovated in the computer science curriculum. 
And the way the introductory CS class is taught at many, many universities around the country is that it's a weed out class and that they're trying to, to make it as tough as possible and weed out as many kids as possible and keep them from pursuing CS. And, um, and at, at Stanford, it was just the opposite. They were trying to make CS um, available and accessible, even if you didn't have a big background in programming. Isn't that just like the most obvious insight in retrospect? It's like, hey, the thing that we, well, but like, I, I think back then we didn't realize that like we were going to need, you know, half yeah. of the population to be proficient at this thing. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, the the long tail of that is like, we have nowhere near enough engineers. So like, yeah. we probably should have tried to make it a little bit more accessible in hindsight. Yeah. Well, it was, it was an interesting time. I was in college from 93 to 97. And then kind of right after I graduated is when the dot-com boom started to rise and, and people started sort of flooding into CS. And it, it actually became a problem for universities because they didn't have the resources to handle it. Totally. And then the tech industry kind of had that bust, that crash in 2001. And so they sort of, they rushed tons of resources to CS and then they, and then they were over-resourced in CS after the bust in students lost interest. And so they kind of retracted them. And because of that volatility, I think as CS has been sort of gradually but steadily rising in interest ever since, I don't know, 2012, 2013 or so. And now we're having a really big boom where there's tons of, this is just a public service announcement for me. Like there is, there is an unprecedented, never before seen in history interest from students to major in computer science at every university and college around the country, as well as globally. And, um, and and colleges and universities are straining at the seams. At Stanford, 20% of the undergrads are majoring in CS. They have 2% of the tenured faculty. Wow. Like at Stanford, like where, where parents are paying a fortune to send their kids for this elite education, kids are sitting in classes that are a thousand people and not That's just like the intro level class, like the machine learning class is a thousand people. It's nuts. And I think part of the reason that universities have been really laggard on moving the resources around. I mean, they've got a tough business model, model right? Because they've got a fixed pie. And so to expand resources for CS, something else has to shrink. So that's rough to begin with. But also because they'd been burned before in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were slow and hesitant um, to experience that again. So I think it's a really durable shift this time. I don't think it's it's just a trend or a fad. Um, and I think we need to find a way actually to, to embed com computation in every discipline. I don't think everybody needs to be a computer science major, but I think everybody, no matter what they're studying, needs to know how to apply computational techniques to it. Yeah, we just had Lambda School on and we were talking about what they're doing. And it's like, it's one of the most, I mean, you want to talk about when a great startup comes along and everyone goes, why did that not exist? Like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, we, um, we, we, you know, our, our listeners are, are familiar now, but it's just one of those things. Like we need to focus on people getting jobs and those jobs are, uh, available for engineers, like 0% like unemployment rate if <laughs> you're, if you're a developer. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we got to do that. Um, and one of the places that you worked with some of the best developers in the world was at Facebook. Can you share some of your experiences there? And, um, you know, semi early days where you were working on some massive projects. Yeah. I joined Facebook in the summer of 2010 and I stayed, um, just over four years. So I think from 2010 to 2014 were really golden years to be at Facebook. Um, we had just crossed half a billion users when I joined. So we were sitting on just incredible amounts of data and um, and we were growing precipitously um, and both with with adding new users to the service, but also really finding ways to make the service more engaging and 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 for for people to choose to spend more time on Facebook. 
And so some of the, this, this is, Facebook's really where I cut my teeth with modern techniques in machine learning and AI. I mean, you know, I took AI classes in college, but these machine learning techniques, although they existed at that time, were kind of a backwater because they were viewed as impractical. And so, you know, the, the big change is actually the rival of cloud infrastructure made it um, fast enough, cheap enough, and practical to amass enough data to train these models to have high enough accuracy. And so all these algorithms that had been around since the 70s and 80s all of a sudden have had this modern relevance. And Facebook was among the pioneers in really putting them to work. And so Facebook used AI in 2010 um, primarily in um, ads, in optimizing who saw what ad, and in search, in getting you the best search result and, and ranking search results. And we were um, preparing, my first big project there was to use machine learning to decide the ordering of your newsfeed. Yeah. what order to put articles in. So are you a cat person? Shall I show you more cat photos? Are yeah. you a baby person? Do you want more baby photos? And, you know, depending on who you are, um, you know, you may you may want to see all the babies or none of the babies yeah. in your in your Facebook newsfeed. So um, so that was a tremendous project that, you know, we all felt was going to make the newsfeed higher quality and more curated. Um, and, you know, I don't think even we had any idea just the magnitude of impact that change would have over time because the nature of machine learning is that it compounds yeah with every click with every like with every comment you're sending more training data back to the model to make it more and more accurate and so you know it's just like the power of compounding interest you know if you save 10 bucks a week and you know it adds up um it's uh that the compounding accuracy of a ranking model um also adds up you Previous to that, you worked at VMware for mm -hmm. um, an extremely brilliant person um, in Diane Green. Mm -hmm. uh, and then next, you you went and worked with Mark. What was Mark Zuckerberg like to work with on kind of a day-to-day -day basis? And how was he involved in um, in AI and in machine learning and, and that stuff like that? Um, Mark's an absolutely brilliant person. I mean, he, he might be the smartest product thinker that I personally know. I definitely think that as CEOs go, you know, if we were going to make Mount Rushmore of tech CEOs, we would put Bill Gates there. We would put Steve Jobs there. Absolutely think Mark Zuckerberg belongs there. Maybe Jeff Bezos. Um, can't say like, you know, and I think there's some other arguments that could be made, but I think those the, the first three are the really clear ones. Um, and, and so I just have immense respect for Mark. He, um, you know, when when I uh, it, from 2010 to 2014, he was deeply engaged in the product. And so when we were um, and he obviously is CEO of a 2000 person company, which it was when I joined, you know, didn't have time to be sitting with all product teams all the time every day. But he was ingenious about managing his time and, and really prioritizing so that key projects he was spending time with every single week. And so the newsfeed team was meeting with Mark every week to tell him you know, how our project was going, what the results were, what we were going to try next. Um, and he was, you know, not just an accountability figure in those meetings. He was absolutely engaged as a product designer and product thinker. Sometimes it was confusing because you weren't sure if you were debating with Zuck wearing his product hat, in which case it was a debate, or if Zuck was wearing his CEO hat and giving you an order. Oh, that's right. Um, so, so you had to actually be uh, be relatively clear about the meta ethics of it all. That's an interesting aside. I mean, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, we... You know, we deal with that stuff as well. It's like, you know, is this something that the CEO is saying, like, we need to do this? Or is this something the CEO is saying is like, hey, we need to think more broadly about this? Yeah. Well, I totally get it because every time I've been in a position of power, it's like, well, wait a second. I don't want to give up the ability 
to ideate, <laughs> to, totally. be, to be part of the brainstorm, to have my input and contribution. You just need to be aware it comes as a really different weight when there's this huge power asymmetry. And so Zuck was very good at, at walking that line, but people still did often go, go off sort of half cocked, you know, oh, Zuck told me to do this, you know, and uh, without really thinking through, okay, but did Zuck have all the information that you have about the costs and consequences of that? Um, and, and, and by the way, I should say that those weekly meetings, that wasn't like with, you know, team management. And I think this is something unique that Zuck did is that these product reviews were with the engineers working on the features, like the designer, the product manager, and most of the, most of the coders were in the room. And like, actually it was the managers who were in the, you know, in the backseat, fly on the wall listening occasionally, you know, we could ideate too. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's something that a lot of CEOs don't do, even CEOs who start out as product visionaries. And I think that Zuck's willingness to kind of just you know, zoom in and out across layers is is part of why is, is what made him so effective. And I just think most people cannot command, don't have the ability to operate at so many different layers of abstraction at the same time. And he really could. Well, and I think, and the reason why I bring it up is, is not just for story time, although mm. I love story time, um, is that, you know, I want to talk about like why CIOs should think about AI, but ultimately like how they should think about AI. And I think, you know, looking a lens into Facebook in 2010 mm -hmm. and how he was looking at AI and machine learning and what a priority it was for him be mm -hmm. sitting in on the meetings, um, I think, you know, gives us a little lens into, you know, why this is so important for CIOs and CTOs and our listeners um, to think about AI and machine learning. Um, you hold uh, many demo days for CIOs at Zeta. Mm -hmm. um, where you're showing off the technologies that your portfolio companies are working on. Um, you work with a lot of CIOs. Um, how should they be thinking about AI and machine learning? It's absolutely core to the business. And, you know, I don't, CIOs and CTOs, you know, can't afford to, you know, maybe in our copious spare time, you know, our leisure reading, like we can dig into the latest cutting edge stuff just out of sort of sheer relish and enjoyment yeah. of the, the subject material. But most of the time, like, it's a big job. It's a big executive job with weighty responsibilities and frankly, business goals to achieve. And so, um, and so sometimes digging into like the latest cool tech is just, it's a hobby, not, it, but not something that you can take time away from achieving business targets to pay attention to. Um, and so where I think AI and machine learning have really crossed over, and I think they crossed over first in consumer. I think AI, AI is fundamentally a technology that is that is good at um, probabilistic estimates, not at like ironclad right wrong answers. And so it was a technology that made sense to roll out first in places where, you know, there's a lot of upside if it works and not too much downside if it doesn't. So the Netflix movie recommendation is kind of the classic, yeah. probably first, you know, mainstream application of AI that most people think of. And it's sort of obvious. Well, yeah, if you give me a better movie recommendation, I'm going to spend more time on Netflix and that's good. And if the movie recommendations are so-so, well, I'm not any worse off. Or the Amazon, um, you might also like. Yep. Uh, and the Facebook newsfeed. Yeah. You know, if I show you more cats than babies, you know, well, okay. Like, you're not going to be upset at Facebook. I mean, isn't that a funny thing to think <laughs> back at, like, that idea of, like, clicking that little button of, like, I don't want to see more of this or yeah. I do want to see more of this. Like, what an interesting, um, you know, kind of like microcosm of, you know, go back from 1990 and just, you know, mm -hmm. go to 2020 if you were to look at those two things and you're like, we have a say in what we actually want to see. It's not mm -hmm. just there. These are the channels. This is what's in the magazine. This is what's in the book. It's just a fascinating. I mean, it's so obvious like now. It's, it's but, mass personalization. Yeah. I mean, we dreamed it in the 90s, but it's real now. And so 
so circling back to why CIOs and CTOs should care about this, um, you know, AI started in consumer. I think it started to make sense in business applications really in the last five or so years. And now it is becoming very mainstream because the accuracy of the technology is good enough that we can afford to to, to turn over mission critical business problems. And we start in business on, on, on the B2B side, by the way, with the same kind of do no harm use cases like sales acceleration. If my, if I can make my sales reps more effective, great. It's more revenue to the bottom line. You know, if I didn't help them that much, oh, well, you know, I haven't, you know, brought the site down. It, you know, how mission critical was it? I mean, you don't want the revenue spigot to entirely stop, but if you're just working on productivity, um, you can have a lot of upside and limited downside. And, um, and then as AI gets more and more successful and proficient in business use cases, we can start to tackle more and more problems throughout the business. A lot of people think AI is synonymous with automation and job loss, but what I've seen from our customers and what they're adopting it for, it's never, it's hardly ever about, well, I'd like to fire this group of people who's too expensive for me. Like that is not a motivation that causes people to run out and buy software most of the time. Usually it's because they've got a critical problem to solve that they cannot otherwise solve. And, um, and making their workers more productive and enabling workers to solve higher level problems is at the center of it. Where I think it's useful for CIOs and CTOs to think of AI-powered solutions, not just as solutions to business problems where, you know, the time may now be right to, to buy something that you couldn't buy before because the tech didn't exist before. Um, I think the other place where it's really interesting to kind of dig in a little bit and double click on the details of the technology is the nature of AI, of these algorithms and, and, and statistical analyses, is that it's usually an attempt to optimize something. And so it actually ties very directly to your business goals and your business metrics. And I'll give you an example that, that circles back to Mark Zuckerberg in the newsfeed. One of the biggest debates we had was, what should be the utility function of the newsfeed? So when you're trying to rank your newsfeed, when you're trying to decide what order to put stories in, you have to make, you have to tell the model to optimize for something. What is it trying to maximize? And there were a lot of key business metrics at Facebook. We could have tried to maximize for a lot of different things. Totally. And at the time, what we chose to optimize for was a weighted combination, mainly of clicks and likes and comments. And then one more metric that was because we felt that those most directly measured as much as far as we could tell the value we were creating for end users of Facebook. But there was a fourth term, which was a much rarer event, but an incredibly valuable one, which is, does a new friendship arise out of this story? That's cool. Yeah. And so I have no idea what the utility function is of the newsfeed today. <laughs> I left more than four years ago. But, um, but those were, but that was hotly debated, both what they should be and what the weights should be. And, um, and that was, and appropriately, a CEO level decision. And so in many businesses, the CIO or the CTO is the one in that room having opportunity to be in that room and to have that debate. And I don't think that's a decision that you want to delegate. I think that's one that is so closely related to the heart of what you're there for. You've talked in the past about this idea that horizontal data is bad. Um, I'd love to dive into that because I think that is a pretty interesting um, idea and concept. Well, it's not so much that I think horizontal data is bad. Um, I just think that startups who are building horizontal machine learning platforms will never accumulate critical mass of data that's about something. So if one day I'm getting data about plastic straw manufacturing and another day I'm getting data about apparel shipments, 
um, you know, each of those is a single data set that's of interest that can be optimized. But I think where AI starts to get really powerful is and to get very high accuracy and to be able to solve, you know, problems that don't at first blush look like they could be automated. Like then it starts to look like magic, right? Like like when you feed an AI enough data, you know, it can look at a sweater and tell you that it's cable knit. Yeah. Right. I mean, that doesn't seem like you could never write enough rules to to teach, to write a program to do that. Right. Um, and so so I think you sort of cross that magic threshold where it's like, holy cow, how did it do that? It really immense volumes of data. And so when you when you're building a very generic machine learning as a service you know, platform and you're adopting any and all use cases, you never kind of accumulate critical mass of data that's about a certain thing, about a certain domain. And I think it's when you do that that you can start to deliver exceptional value. So if you were saying, like we recently talked to um, a really cool um, company that is focused on like, you know, blue collar AI, basically AI for, um, for industrial sector. So a lot of those things are human being on the ground, you know, doing whatever that thing is. You're saying that building that data set vertically allows you to look across your customers and see different things and create insights that could potentially help all of your customers rather than, you know, if you were focused, if you had customers that were in fashion and in the, these different things where like there's no insights that you're, or there might be some, but it's just not as much of the, the Venn diagram in the middle is not as big. Yeah, I'll give you an example from Zeta's portfolio. I'm an investor in a company called Verison. They're in Atlanta, Georgia. And what they do is they help manufacturers um, figure out the optimal level of spare parts to, to have in their stock room yeah. to keep the manufacturing line running. All right. That sounds like kind of an obscure problem. But um, but it turns out, you know, if you're a manufacturer and, you know, and you have an outage, like it's 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 lost revenue, like business is at, is at, is at a halt. So like sort of job number one is you want to be five, six, sigma, six, sigma. You don't want to let the manufacturing line stop. And so if it stops because of a failed part, what do you do? You go buy 10 of that part and you keep it around. Well, if you don't have a really good data set about what parts you already have on hand and what parts might be prone to break and what parts um, are you have in a storeroom, you know, 20 miles away that could reach you within the hour. Um, what happens is that you just, when you just adopt this attitude of I'll buy more of whatever's the last thing that broke, you just sort of accumulate this this infinitely expanding stockroom of uh, you know this procurement nightmare where you've actually tied up tens of millions of dollars of working capital in parts that are not doing you any good and um and so what Verison is able to do is first of all it part of this problem accumulates because the data is a mess and so they come in and they clean up the data set they duplicate it they harmonize it they match this skew from this manufacturer with that skew from that manufacturer and realize it's and, and realize that it's or that distributor and realize it's fundamentally the same ball bearing. And so they give you actually transparency into what your inventory assets are. And then the next thing they're able to do is start to feed in that downtime information, that failure information, their understanding of manufacturing lines and start to say, OK, well, if you want to be five sigma, here's the inventory levels you need to keep. And by the way, here's the excess inventory you can liquidate. But if you're open to being three sigma, which is only like an infinitesimal amount more downtime per year, actually you could save much more. And so it still leaves the control in the customer's hand. It's not saying this is the inventory to liquidate. It's saying here's, it's it's teeing up a decision for a human being to make, but it is a, a decision that was incredibly hard for that human to make accurately before. And it's the difference 
between being reactive and proactive. And exactly. That, and that's the thing that's so exciting about AI is like synthesize this and tell me what I don't know rather than just, you know, saying, well, every six months we have to reorder blank. And, um, you know, and I think ultimately those logistics channels are really wired tight. That doesn't mean that that AI couldn't come in and completely change those margins, which end up in millions and millions of dollars of savings, which if you're the CIO and you're going and taking that business case to the leadership team and saying, hey, I, I just found found you $17 million a year, um, it's a good position to be in. Yeah. Um, you know, I spoke to one of their customers who's like, you know, we need to upgrade SAP and we have no idea where the budget for that is going to come from. And if I deploy the system, I just paid for the SAP upgrade. Now I'm a hero. And um, and, and that was an incredible story. And so so those are those are some of the things you can do when you have context specific to a domain. And by the way, no one of those manufacturers had enough data to make a perfectly predictive system. But it's when you start to combine it across manufacturers that you really start to see the benefits and nobody wants to, you know, and, and the manufacturer, their customers don't have a problem pooling this data. I mean, they want it anonymized and de-identified, but, you know, nobody's trying to get comparative advantage out of like having less stockroom inventory. Yeah. So it's just about running a more efficient, lean business. And in fact, there's industry consortiums where procurement people from different companies get together and tr talk about how to try to make this better. And the answer is Verison. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with horizontal data, but it can solve a point problem in a point way. And when you start to get domain specific data, whether that's vertical or whether that's specific to a job function, then you start to really um, do more and more powerful things with it. And I think also like talking about the things AI can do, um, there's not an inevitable progression, but, you know, one of the things AI can do is it can just describe, right? It can classify. So imagine something that looked at the fire hose of data on on Twitter and picked out everything that was about your brand and classified the sentiment as good, bad, or indifferent, right? Um, or, you know, brand emergency, you know, crisis PR call now. And and so that kind of a, a solution is actually just descriptive, right? That doesn't automate anybody's job, all it, because nobody, no human could actually sit there and try to be on top of every tweet anyway. So, so all that does is describe and tee up information, classified, curated information for a human being to act on. The next level of AI goes from descriptive to predictive. So if it's seeing all the tweets all the time, like maybe now it can predict what sentiment will be next week or predict how people react. And again, you know, there were probably already human beings trying to make predictions, trying to forecast. This just helps them be more accurate and better at their job. If you get more and more data, that AI about what people did about those predictions and, and, and how successful or unsuccessful those results were, you may be able to train a model that becomes prescriptive. And in which case it's serving up a recommendation of what you should do. You know, you should you should do your product launch on a Tuesday because that's yeah. when it'll have the most uptake. Um, and, and I think even then, a lot of times when those decisions are business critical and mission critical, you still want a human being in the loop saying yes or no. And, you know, maybe no, because I happen to know that this Tuesday is Lunar New Year or well, actually that could probably be captured in a model. But, you know, I may have some inside knowledge, whatever, as a human that the model doesn't have. Like I'm always going to make the fun or at least I want a human be to be accountable for the decision of when the product launch goes. And then, and then last but not least is sort of full automation and there's no human in the loop at all. And, and the AI can both predict what's going to happen, prescribe what to do about it and then just do it. And 
I think the useful thing is like we get really spun up about the idea of the, the, the fully automated AI, but there's so much value at every one of those steps. And there's so many great solutions um, that that and it's, it's not like a ladder that you have to climb. There's phenomenal solutions that deliver tremendous value that are just descriptive and will never be more than that. But that's all you need. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think it's it's kind of like akin to a, um, you know, sales funnel, right, where you have this like the old model is like you need the whole funnel. And then now it's like, well, there's parts of the funnel that people can go from like awareness to sale, like instantaneously now or or, or in some other way. I think this idea that AI as a kind of this this sliding scale um, and you actually and you talk about the sliding scale of cloud providers as well. Actually, maybe we should just go into that now. Mm. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on where we're at for cloud right now? I think it's probably trite at this point to say cloud is the future. I think cloud is the present. Yeah. And um, and we have a lot of great options and prices are falling and and there's tremendous innovation. Serverless is clearly going to be huge. Um, I think it gives CIOs a lot of options, but one of the options it, it gives you is, is you know, how are you freed up by not having to build that infrastructure in-house? Yeah. By being able to outsource that and by having the agility and flexibility, what are you doing instead with that capacity, with those resources? And I think that's what turns cloud into a win. It's not just sort of shifting the infrastructure cost from CapEx to OpEx, like your CFO may be happy about that. But what really makes it a win is if you're able to take the freed up resources and do more and achieve greater results. And I think actually AI is going to operate like that too, I believe for most businesses. I don't think it's going to be pure cost cutting. And in truth, cloud has not proven to be cost cutting, right? I mean, and this was, it's like, oh, it's going to be so much cheaper. We won't need all those sysadmins, you know, racking and stacking. But, you know, lo and behold, we're spending as much or more on cloud, but because we have the agility, because we have the freedom, because we can be more flexible, because we can decentralize those pieces, we can actually take our human workforce and and put them on more valuable problems. And I think we'll see the same thing with AI. I think this idea of automating jobs is has to be thought about, has to be dealt with. Um, there are some job categories where humans won't do it as well as machines. Um, I think that's always been part of the story of technological pro- progress, but maybe AI makes that come faster. While it's a problem that needs solving, I think, you know, over-focusing on it sort of obscures the real opportunity, which is when we automate the manual work, you know, how much more knowledge work, how much farther and more valuable can your human beings go in doing what humans do best, which is make decisions and do creative work. I mentioned before that you worked at VMware um, for what, about seven years? Mm-hmm. Um, you were there when there were 350 employees uh, and... Uh, and left when there was uh, over 10,000. Um, and you got to work really closely with Diane Green. Um, would love to learn just a, l- a little bit more about like what that experience was like. And she's, you know, a- another visionary and, and legendary in her own right. Um, but I think just working on a project or at a company like VMware that truly pushed the boundary of what people thought was possible. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as an investor, I very rarely am looking for you know, technology in search of a problem to solve. Usually the great startups are the ones that, that start with a problem in mind and figure out a way to solve it. Um, VMware, though, is that that exception that proves the rule. I mean, it was really Mendel's research as a computer science professor at Stanford 
and his breakthroughs that it would be possible to virtualize the x86, which had been thought impossible. And I think once you had that, you know, virtualization was a technology that existed in the mainframe era and for other kinds of architectures. And it was very obvious how virtualization could be valuable in an enterprise context if it could be possible. Um, and so the invention there was that it, it was possible. And, um, and yet I think an invention alone doesn't get you very far unless you can figure out how to make that a product that solves a problem for a customer. Yeah. And that's where Diane came in. And um, and so she and Mendel were just a, a phenomenal team. I think VMware is one of the great, you know, husband, wife, founding team stories totally. of the tech industry. You know, people forget Cisco was also a husband and wife. I know. So, yeah. And it's a, it's a different story. So there's, you know, it's like, it happens now and people are like, oh, that's, it's so novel. And I'm like, well, actually. Well, my, my co-founders are, uh, are, are Mary, Chad and Stephanie. So I, I definitely, um, I mean, and that's like, I mean, as an investor, I'm sure you know this, like they, they definitely, um, were shy about like telling that to people because there's people who are like, oh, that's, you know, that like that doesn't work and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, I could point to some pretty good exits that proves that that works. Yeah, I think um, uh, I, I could list a bunch. I, I got curious about this after working at VMware and, and there's there's quite a few big successes. I think it's interesting. Investors do. There's very few investors who are indifferent. There are quite a few investors who view it as a, a negative because of, you know, maybe the potential for greater volatility in the, the co-founder relationships. But I just view it as a double down, you know, totally. if, you, if you have um, a, a team that are married, like the, the potential downside is potentially there's some risk there with, you know, if you have co-founder drama, it, it has a much deeper impact perhaps. But um, but likewise, the upside is also immense. I mean, you get people working 24 seven like that are, you know, absolutely 100 percent in and committed um, and who have complementary strengths and work well together. And like, you know, we're psyched when we meet a founding team that has been friends for five years. Like, well, these people have been, you know, have committed their lives to each other. Right. So I think, um, you know, and I, as a VC, we're in the business of home runs and outliers. We are in the we're not in the business of like safe bets that are guaranteed to be successful we're in the business of backing things that are high risk and high reward. And so we should my view is we should like factors that amplify, that greatly amplify the potential upside, which is which is how I see a, a related founding couple. I love that. That's a great way of putting it. Um, so so VMware. Um, so I joined as uh, the tech lead of the device virtualization team, which is really boiler room hypervisor stuff, the the network and disk. And uh, and it was a, a, a small team. VMware was a couple hundred people. And um, that year we shipped the... I think ESX 2.0. And so so VMware's history was that it started as a developer tool, like as a place for, you know, sysadmins and developers to play, to run Windows on Linux or to fool around with, you know, different test configurations in different environments because the idea of virtualization was too science fictional to even contemplate putting anything mission critical on top of it. In fact, I've heard I'd heard of VMware working at my previous startup. We were an early SaaS company before you could use the term SaaS in 2001. And so we had some, you know, we had a colo and we had a rack and we had servers that were running our software for our customers. And I still remember our ops guy said, hey, I found this VMware thing and we could save a bunch of money if we ran multiple VMs. And I remember saying to him, God, that doesn't sound safe. No, <laughs> I don't trust that. Um, and then ironically, my, my next job was at uh, with, with VMware. So I would say 2003, um, when I joined was the year that we got product market fit with the data center. And it's a good time to join. That 
company became a rocket and that we couldn't, you know, the, the, the sales guys, you know, couldn't sell it fast enough. I mean, it was just flying off the shelves and it was reasonably priced and the value to customers was incredible, which is, you know, you bought these mega servers from HP or Dell and you could run one application on it that barely nudged the CPU and you had all this capital outlay and you weren't getting the value of it. And so the ability to run even two or three applications on one server instead of one application per server was, you know, was a breakthrough. Um, and then on top of that, not just, and, and I will say just server consolidation, just the ability to buy fewer servers really did sell VMware in the early days. But we did a great job of understanding the, the environment and what people were trying to do and delivering sort of the early precursors to the cloud, that agility, that flexibility that you could get. Um, your admins away from racking and stacking servers and think about managing your hardware as though it were software. And um, and we invented that. We pioneered that. And we became we went from non-existent in the data center to ubiquitous in the data center over those next five years. And we also doubled revenue and doubled headcount every year over those next five years. It's incredible. So, you know, in that environment, um, your reward for doing good work is here you go. Twice as much work. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so um, and so I just. Uh, before I knew it was managing two teams and then was a, a director with managers working for me and then was vice president of engineering for a big chunk of stuff and then was, you know, picking up, um, you know, other teams that needed a, a, a little bit of turnaround or help scaling. And and the wheels are always coming off the train when <laughs> you're always doing twice as much the next year as you were the last year. So like scaling and hyper growth was just and, and there was no time to sort of stop and be reflective about it. You just had to sort of put your head down and do it. And so um, five or six years in, uh, I was at the VP level running engineering. Um, at that point, we had a new CEO who came from a Microsoft background. He felt that VMware, um, in order to... And a constant theme for us was that we didn't want to just be a one-trick pony with only really relying on ESX or vSphere by then and the data center and there was this view that the desktop could be a significant alternative revenue stream and the idea, well, how are we going to get away from being a one trick pony? The pony with the one trick is a really great trick um, and, and had a lot of uh, center of gravity. And so the idea was, well, let's do business units. And with the structure of a business unit around an initiative like the desktop or like the cloud, um, we can get more attention and more escape velocity for it. And so I became the first GM at VMware and ran the desktop business unit which at the time was a $150 million line of business. I think it's, um, I think it's a couple billion now. Jeez. <laughs> so, um, so that was, uh, um, so it just was an incredible learning experience. I mean, you know, to be constantly challenged and, and sort of as soon as you get the slightest bit of mastery of what you're doing, you're thrust out of your comfort zone again. It was just incredible. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. We'll be back on Friday with part two of our conversation with Jocelyn. See you soon. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps.